This is Paul McGann, the 8th Doctor. You're listening to Gallifrey Public Radio. Go and throw yourself under a bus. I didn't mean to say that. He told me to say that. This is Gallifrey Public Radio, a weekly podcast dedicated to positive enjoyment of Doctor Who. We travel through classic and new episodes, explore the extended universe, and play a few games from time to time. We do discuss news, content that has been officially released, and the occasional interesting rumor, but we'll warn you before anything considered spoilers comes up. Welcome to episode 452 of Gallifrey Public Radio, where our love of story arcs comes in tall, grande, and venti, but sometimes it's best just to keep it short. I'm Kier. I'm Haley. And I'm Julie. This week, we look at the six frantic hours of the Doctor Who Flux story and wonder how much the credited script editors Caroline Buckley and Rebecca Rohan were allowed to do with the Chris Chibnall material they were handed. Yeah, one of the recurring points about the 13th series, uh, whether you take it from a positive or a negative review, is that the sheer volume of plot within it is enough to drown the ill-prepared viewer. And given the very strange marketing efforts that were leading up to the Halloween premiere, there really wasn't much preparation that those viewers could do. From breakneck pacing to times when multiple story threads converged and diverged to breathless plot exposition, critics were given all the ammunition they needed to curse the showrunner, while his defenders claimed he made Doctor Who a more risk-taking and compelling show. Casual viewers were thrown to the wolves, though. Over six weeks, we kept finding things that could benefit from more screen time, things that didn't need the time they had, or scenes that could have been resequenced to make the whole thing more approachable. Now, we are thrilled to have a friend joining us for this chat who often discusses Doctor Who positively, constructively, and with a fair bit of good humor and a clear love for the show. So, Kevin, welcome to GPR. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to have this cock. Let's start with the, well, well, the hard truths, uh, because this is a safe conversation space. Um, was Series 13 a good story to tell? You know, one one defense of this story I've seen is that it's like a classic story in, in the way it's structured and presented. But I have to wonder if that's a great idea for a modern audience, you know? I think... I think when you get down to it, serialization is how a lot of people are watching TV now. Like, people are having these conversations about WandaVision and stuff because it keeps you guessing, it keeps you trying to figure out where the plot's going. I think having that in Doctor Who is a great idea. I mean, I love the uh, Series 6 with Matt Smith because it had all those elements. I think there's ways this one could have been better. I think it could have had more substance to the mysteries. But I think as a basic structure, it's a good one to have and... Obviously, if you're going to set up the Timeless Child thing, you have to pay that off. Yeah, very true. I don't think there's anything wrong with going with the big serial route. Uh, I think there there are times when we have had we have done shorter arcs or ones that whether it was the uh, the Bad Wolf hinting or things of that sort, where uh, or or uh, the Capaldi era in the the mystery of the hybrid and those things that that gave us that compelling urge to want to try to suss it out. 
maybe this was just a matter of execution, um, or as we'll we'll be getting to shortly, uh, a matter of condensation and trying to get the material out there uh, as quickly as possible, given a very short uh, allotted amount of time. So not really certain. That remains to be seen. I don't know if we'll ever have a really definitive answer on that, but we have our theories. I mean, I think one of the things a modern audience expects from a serialized story is it's going to be tight. Like all the threads you're seeing laid out on the table are going to be wound together by the end. Everything that's put there is going to matter for the overall story that's being told. And I don't know that this story delivered on that type of serialization. Hmm. I also think the other thing people expect from a serialized story that I'm not sure this quite delivered on is an emotional journey. If you're having a story that on that is ongoing week to week, you want to see the characters and their relationships change week to week and build somewhere. And I think for me, one of the missed opportunities of the series was I didn't feel a sense of that culmination at the end. That's a really good point. And I think that kind of puts a really good button on where we didn't get that progression or anything that moved us from one to the next. It was just, I'll say it because it's what I really feel is that we had a lot of narrative and nothing that moved the story between. And I feel like that emotional piece of it might have solved for that. Yeah, I feel like we, we, we got the emotional stuff like in the beginning of the first episode, one scene in the middle, and then the end of the last episode. Right. And and maybe that's because some of it was left in the editing floor, or maybe it was a matter of the fact that they just it wasn't given the opportunity to breathe sufficiently, um, or, or whether it was just uh, superseded by the fact that we had to get to the high action, high intensity, high peril moments to, to, to try and sell this. Because at some point, you know, whether it was at whatever stage or multiple stages through the production process, BBC kept giving the green light, kept telling them to to go ahead and as planned. And we're still debating. I don't know, Kevin, if you have any insight on this as to as to where the decision came down to uh, condensing it to the six chapter installment that it was, because we understood at one point that it was going to be a little bit more broad than that. Maybe even by you know just a handful of episodes, it might have had a little bit more space to 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 bloom a bit. But um, I, I don't I don't know. I know there was a image of a director's slate going around from one of the episodes that suggested, I can't remember which episode it was, but it suggested the numbering was initially different. There might have been one more episode or so that might have been chopped in and edited. Right. I don't know the exact details of that, unfortunately, but I could definitely believe that something was lost along the way. Mm. I feel like that you felt that some places not the whole thing and not like everything was crammed in, but there were some times where you're like that. Could th was that originally how you would have pieced that together, right. or kind of the the equivalent of scar tissue? You can tell that some mm -hmm. some work's been done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. And I also, I know, I believe Chris Chibnall talked in Doctor Who magazine or something. I can't remember where about some of those plot elements being added as a result of making it the one big serial. Like, if I remember right, wasn't the whole flux destruction of the universe thing a later addition to up the stakes for the serialization? I'd have to double check, but that was my understanding. And then somehow in the process, it becomes not only the defining element of the of the series thematics, but it's also uh, I don't know, sort of the, the working environment that uh, that all these characters are bound together with, effectively or not. It, it, you know, your mileage may vary. That's maybe a little bit why we saw it interspersed throughout, and not really as the big bad as the main thing. And it was connected right. together, but it was sort of one of those you saw the threads sewing 
the Ravagers up to it, being like, oh, we need this to have a reason and things well, like that. That goes back to the comment about this uh, sort of smacking a bit of a, of a classic story. Because that's a matter of how many times have we seen uh, the adversary, the the devil that you know, is suddenly uh, proves to be an underling of the the larger devil you didn't even know, and then even another tier on top of that, even before everything you know hits its apex. And the costumes get bigger when you meet each one of them, <laughs> and more and more fantastic. <laughs> True. I don't know. It's hard to top the costumes for Swarm and Azure. Like they were so I, nice, I was so good, and the makeup yes. work was exceptional. Yes. But- like, if it weren't tacky, I want those teeth. <laughs> <laughs> just veneers. Yeah. Just I just veneers. want that crystal in her forehead. Like, that is so yeah. pretty. <laughs> Go full geode. <laughs> <laughs> so, as, as we're talking about the characters and elements and structure, which elements of the chapters or series really need to stay? And either for sensible plot or simple fan enjoyment. Well, we touched on this really briefly. The the Timeless Child and Fugitive Doctor division aspect was a must because that was far too much to to throw the fan base at the close of series 12 to just to just name check that or give it some sort of a cursory mention through the course of this series. That had to be that had to be the the core as far as just fan fluff or fan wank or however you want to phrase it. I would I would say the language. Well, no, it's it's well we're we're a PG thirteen show. The aspect of the the troubled relationship between Yaz and the Doctor needed to be there because there were these there were for a couple of reasons it was it was really beneficial to both characters I feel um, particularly Yaz because as we got hints from the previous series she is dealing with issues um, from her um, uh, from her evolution as a character and also with her interactions with the space fam that needed to be worked through uh in order to to really solidify the 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 greater depth of character that we were getting hints of i i really wanted to see that driven home i thought it was a nice change to finally have some sort of interpersonal drama between the yaz and the doctor at long last that was something i felt was lacking within their first two series together where I feel like the the flat team structure means you don't really get them having different viewpoints, different perspectives, which means it's hard to define them against each other. So having Yaz call the doctor out on keeping secrets gives them something to work through and gives them something to distinguish themselves. I got a little upset at the doctor for how she was treating Yaz, but I feel that it wrapped nicely with her apologizing and admitting that she was wrong. That's a very human thing that was some of the emotion that i think we did see and i appreciated that it i I could say this it humanized the doctor which uh is a weird thing to say because they're an alien but uh it works i just wish there was a little as as you say there's a little bit more of it uh woven through um the, the fact that the story pulled them apart from you know chapter one to chapter six and and they have to deal with these things on their own sort of sending hologram messages and such to to try to keep the connection alive what felt inadequate to that particular growth um but then when you have things like trying to to fill that emotional gap with the uh vendor and bell again scattered trying to have these things across great distances or dan and diane again scattered I mean, it's just, I got the point. Yeah, long distance relationships are tough. I, I get it, Chris. <laughs> let's let's work closer to yeah. home. So of those relationships, since we're asking um, which character, what stories, what needed to be there, did we feel like the, all those different long distance relationships were needed? Were they getting repetitive to have all of them? I mean, without knowing what they're going to do with her, I kind of feel like you could have lost Diane 
without affecting much. I would have liked to see more of the other relationships, though. Um, I would have liked to see more with Division and more of the Ravagers, if they're supposed to be the almost big bad, and maybe, like, lose some of the extra villains that were crammed into the overall story. I, I thought it was good fun to have the Sontarans around if we're talking about extra villains, because they were very funny this time around. I, I, so I, I think everybody liked the Sontaran episode and the Angels episode the most, but I feel like those were also the most extraneous elements to the overall story if you needed to streamline it. But I love that we are now afraid of the angels again. True. That's like, true. That is for me, one of the major takeaways from the whole season is that I, I get your point Haley and that like you could lose it, but I, I think it was a plot driver because it got them back in time, which I mean, I don't know if that really needed to be there all the way through, but, but yeah, we also had a wonky TARDIS that could have gotten us there, which, mm. Wait, did we get resolution on that? I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. We, we got hand waved on camera that. angles. Yeah, we we couldn't tell whether or not it had had rectified itself. You couldn't tell from those final sequences uh, when they were back in the console room whether or not things were back to in, in working order again. I haven't uh, gone in and zoomed in to see if there's still the <laughs> sludge. Yeah, that the, the black ichor that running down the walls and such. But then again, we also know that you know, how, whatever percentage of the universe has been torn to shreds, and we haven't resolved that either. So, yeah, happy New Year, everybody. That's going to be fantastic. <laughs> I mean. Was it partially that the time vortex was being ripped apart and so the TARDIS being connected to the time vortex necessarily would have to ooze from that inside I'm out? I'm super confused by that. Like, I know in the last episode they suddenly say, oh yeah, the flux is antimatter, which is a very known thing and Chris Chimnall clearly likes talking about it. He had that whole speech about it in the Saranga Conundrum, but like, how does antimatter affect time? Wasn't they a f- the flux affecting time? I'm very lost as to how that answer we get in the last episode clarifies what came before. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought I keep going back and forth on this too, is was the flux about the space or was the ravagers about the space and how does space, space and time, time other than just saying this is an epic battle between space and time. Well, yeah. How other than just saying, well, it's like they, Again, if if the Ravagers are supposed to be our big bad, le- leading into Division and then leading into Time, that was established as like the big thing, but we didn't get enough explanation of those elements, I feel like, to really have them carry this story. You know, we've got all this confusion about space-time and what is this big battle, and maybe we're going to get more of it later. But it, it was just kind of info-dumped a couple times and then not really yeah. built out. At, at this point, I've kind of given up the idea that we'll get more answers, and I think I had before the Vanquishers even aired, because I think sort of the pattern with this series is you get maybe one or two lines to say what happened, and then that's it. You have to pick up on that or it's over, which is really difficult to follow. For me, the big one was with um, Azur being turned into a human or whatever and imprisoned into the Antarctic. Like, there's a line in uh, episode three where they're like, where the fugitive doctor is saying she'll sentence them to like life imprisonment or erasure of identity. And that's it. That's all we're ever going to get told about why that happened. And yeah. yeah. I never caught that. So thank you. Cause I'm today years old. And I learned <laughs> that that's where that yeah, I think that was explained. one of our outstanding questions last week is why did they get such different punishments for the same crime? Which that we don't get an answer. <laughs> because that's what this fugitive doctor said, I guess. <laughs> that's all we get to know. 
<laughs> the only thing is, I think we're going to see time again, just because we kind of ended on time without much else happening. Other than that, still confused. Yeah. So which of the elements or chapters would we really want to drop? What could have been left out to make things more streamlined? I believe Haley was talking about Diane. Yes. I don't know why Diane Diane. was there. I feel like actually what I would have done if I were getting my pen all over this, I would have just condensed her and Claire together. That way you turn the Angels episode into, you could get an argument between the Doctor and Dan and give Dan a point as well to uh, whether they prioritize saving Claire, prioritize, prioritize the Division stuff. As is, I don't know why Diane is there, and I don't even really know why Dan is there beyond, we hired a John Bishop, let's make a big deal out of it. Right. Well, also with Jericho stealing every scene he was in, Dan really didn't get a chance to stand out. I like the dynamic between Yaz and Dan. I don't think you could have had the same relationship between Yaz and Jericho by themselves, but I don't know that you couldn't have had a good relationship between just Yaz and Jericho that wouldn't have been adorable and lovely. One of the the most redeeming aspects of the of the Dan Genda, uh, as we've been coining it, um, <laughs> thank you, Haley, uh, is uh, it, it comes within the the waning moments of episode six or chapter six when they the they are reunited and Dan is the one to step forward and say, uh, I've I've been spending three years with Yaz. She's been brilliant. She's done absolutely everything. She's unstoppable. And and Yaz needed to hear that. The doctor needed to hear that. And we as the audience really needed to hear that because that was the affirmation that she's been waiting two seasons to get. So, But does Dan have to be the one to deliver that? Well, the fact that Dan was a character that could just be sort of knocked about as the, the likable lump for that long, um, comedic relief when necessary but he was also the liver in connection so that if you're gonna keep that as the as that return point mm-hmm. which explains why chris chibnall said well i wrote this character for john mm-hmm. okay because he's a prominent liverpool comic uh, I, okay i'm sure there are i guess this might be i mean yeah i guess this is what we're talking about could we've gotten rid of the whole tunnel thing i would absolutely have cut that i think it would have been very easy to set up those doors in any other fashion. And I liked having the, uh, I forget the name, Joseph Williamson. I liked having him pop up randomly. It was cool to have a mystery linger that long, but I don't think it was substantial enough to be needed. I kind of feel like that whole thread, it was feels like it would have been left over from a full series. Like, I'm guessing they would have contracted John Bishop pretty early on, like way before COVID hit, and been planning like a full series where he would have just been the normal companion, and then you condense it all, and he feels kind of extraneous. Yeah, but, yeah. Would he also need to be there for Carvanistas and the Lupari mm-hmm. to be on their way there? That, I mean, that's from chapter one, so it's it's kind of back of the mind, but that placement of the Lupari mm-hmm. and the relationship that they had, was that necessary? Well, we end up with a lot of, uh, a lot of causality layers here because we choose to include this character. We have to then wrap this around it in order to justify that. Now that we've got that, we've got an imbalance of power and we need to bring the Lupari in because the Centaurans are going to be involved because the Lupari are going to be involved. We need to have some sort of connection that brings them to earth in the first place. So now we need to connect them as a, <laughs> You know, man's best friend, compa- a long-running gag. Connect the doubts. Yeah, so it's just layer upon layer upon layer that if you were to go back and say, you know what, we're going to we're gonna streamline from the core and just say, mm, 
maybe we don't need to to have the conflict happening uh, both at the far reaches of the universe and um, you know, on the surface of the Earth, scattered through time, and have things you know being being caught in that stratosphere layer. That means that you can take all of those other um, ancillary uh, inclusions and pare them down considerably, or chuck them entirely and focus on I don't know more show don't tell. Uh, is that what a little bit of breathing room before writing, editing, and then filming gives you that time to look, take that step back, look at it again and say, okay, red pen here, highlight I, this. I think letting somebody take a red pen to your script does wonders. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be it. Because I think we had some of those same frantic, uh, over-crammed plot issues in previous episodes and previous series when they did have the time to bake through things. Like, I enjoyed the Timeless Children, but there is no reason it should have had that much happen in that episode and not space those reveals out previously. I feel like Flux suffered from the same issue, but all the more so because we had all the more to get through. Mm -hmm. So what we then have as a result of what's being presented to us in just under six hours is a lot, and there are specific decisions that were made as to the order and sequence in which that was going, that information was going to get conveyed to us as the viewer. Whether we were veteran or or casual viewer, I don't think there are any casual viewers out there that tried to plod through this. Um, <laughs> but, but we I don't have think that the matter. casual viewers knew what he was even on. Most casual that, viewers I know are like, "Wait, has Shoddy Whitaker had a second series yet?" <laughs> She had a third. When was it on? Oh, the past six weeks. What they did it in six weeks. Whoa! And and the one that I know was sort of like I dropped after four episodes because I just didn't know what was going on. Okay, so well that leads me to my next question: Could any sort of a resequencing or a reordering of those key scenes or what we consider to be the real pivotal plot movers um, have helped those casual viewers or even just us that that had to that felt the need to watch each episode at least twice? if not more, to really feel like we, we wrung everything out of it. Could a reordering of those scenes have helped understand the complex plot lines a little better? What would you have done to sort of just rejigger what was what was really necessary? Maybe the Angels episode happens a little earlier so that we don't have the present-day Claire sent back to meet her again, to send her further back, to bring her forward. <laughs> Yeah, I have, uh, I have no problem with tinkering with time in Angels episodes, but if you only get that sort of smashed into the the midpoint, uh, which also happens to be the only chapter out of the whole set that has a uh, co-writer credited, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe I mean, that's I think why the, it works so well. I think one of the big problems you get there with understanding this series is I, it was my personal favorite episode, Once Upon Time, but it was also the most confusing by far, and it's where all the j answers were jammed in. So by placing that right in the middle, right when people are sort of starting to wonder what's going on with after the Sontaran episode and after the premiere, you just dump this massive pile of information on them in the most confusing way possible instead of raising the intrigue and providing some answers. I think that's going to throw people off. Bringing the angel stuff forward might have helped, spacing out some of those answers. I think even bringing forward a lot of the division stuff from episode five would have really been clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. That because that was that seemed to be one of the predominant questions that kept getting louder and louder as we got towards uh chapter three, four, five was you keep giving us all of this really nebulous information about division, but you're just handing us more questions and really not giving us anything to chew on. All all this is just telling us is we have more and more concerns about what's on our plate. 
and and maybe this sort of connects back to the what would be left on the editing floor or or you know would get the the red stroke of death from the pen would be the entire grand serpent character. Mm. Oh yeah, I, I forgot just, to even talk about it. <laughs> I, I forgot about him too. <laughs> right, because I the, thought about it and then was like, "Eh, should I even mention him? What is <laughs> it it grounded Vinder a bit?" Mhm. Okay. Because oh, we got I, I his, loved him with that. Yeah. But yeah, but if I, we I, don't have the grand serpent, can we tie Vinder into a different storyline instead? And did he need to come back? Did you need to have him in his his long uh, his long game infiltration of unit? Did you have to have unit? Well, you wouldn't have to have unit if you didn't have the Centauran invasion. If you didn't, mm-hmm. and then again, here we go back to the. <laughs> or, or can we just see Kate on the street against yeah. the Centaurans earlier? <laughs> like yeah. Kate I with a the unit thinking team. for it was he Chibnall started with. I want to bring unit back. I want to give Kate her big moment. And then it's like, oh crap, COVID. Um, who do we have on hand that's already been in our bubble that we can reuse? Um, that guy from Vinder's backstory. He's a big baddie now. Cool. Hmm. That's kind of how it felt to me. Even when he showed up again, that's what I felt like. Yeah. I, I was like, wait, I thought we were done with you. You served your purpose. I don't feel that your grand plan fits in, unless there's a big reveal in the future. But how do you get off that teeny tiny rock with no door? I mean, if you're going to have all the Sontarans around, maybe just have a Sontaran perception filter. And that'd be funnier, too. If you got to do the whole unit. Trying to talk like a normal yeah. human and dem- like just demanding things and getting pronouns wrong on purpose. But I, it works like, perfect yeah, as like a blustering politician. <laughs> yeah. You could have just as easily had uh, Kate deciding to, to work entirely on her own, pulling her resources together once unit proper got mothballed. Uh, and just say, you know, she's just the type that I, I can't give this up. This is this is my f- this is the family business. So I'm going to continue doing this offline. And and she's the first one to to detect these anomalies or start to suss the stall out because they already give her credit for saying, "I see you." You know, I, but I've been doing all the research on my own. I found out all about you, and I pulled all these files, and I've and I've you know, I've worked all these all these things together. That could have been the same way that she was able to determine Centauran occupation. We were told in the second second chapter when the Suntarans were there that they did mess with time throughout history. It could have just been the Suntarans mm. and her... Also, is history still broken? Uh, random question. question. Like, we know. They, they colonized, like, all of Asia? Does that just... Does, does history just stay intact after that? Yeah, is I'm there a confused. Russia? <laughs> <laughs> Suntarha. It's just Suntarha. Yes. Yes we, and also yes. We would know about it if it had happened. Clearly, right? Like the well, unless we know we're, about Russia, uh, so <laughs> we're living in a, in one of the multiverses. Yeah, oh, man, we're on that those, other those universe. universe too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where that poor Ood is going to end up if things carry on. Uh, the last of its kind. Everybody's the last of their kind now. Oh well, they love. They did it to Carbonis too. Yeah. So, you know, they, when in doubt, make somebody the last of their kind and just. Hold pathos. That's that's all you got to do. But then they'll spring forth from some secret chamber in. So, one oh, we more found series. ten more in this box. Who knew? <laughs> did you, Did you see that video that was going viral on, or at least viral as far as Doctor Who fandom goes on Twitter earlier today, where it was just the clip of them saying, "Oh, Carvinistas kind of all died." About three seconds passed. Cut to the Doctor flying the TARDIS. <laughs> yes, we could have used more breathing room on that. I mean, I think that's the tagline of this series. <laughs> Plus, we could have used more breathing room. <laughs> Insufficient time to howl at the ceiling. Right. Has anyone brought up just the uh, unfortunate implications of Flux as a title at any point? 
Yeah, what the flux? Uh, not just that, it's also a word for dysentery. Oh. Oh. <laughs> wow. Which, I guess that ties into, I don't know, Crimean War. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Valid. Bringing it all together. That's true. Be funny if someone said, oh, we need to stop the flux. And one of the soldiers said, oh, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one thing they should have kept in. And they clearly it got cut. We get in trouble uh, for poop jokes on this podcast. So we d- often. often. <laughs> oh, <That's> really? <laughs> I just delete the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the issues we've talked about is the compression of the series into six episodes. Does knowing that COVID concerns and other factors that led to the condensing of the original serial explain the resulting issues with long exposition, frenetic pacing, or plot holes? has to be a factor. I don't know if it's personally, and, and again, we may never know, but I feel that that's probably the lion's share of the, of the issue. I, mm-hmm. I think that there was, a, there was a far better eight to 10 hour story that Chris has been dying to tell for years, and this was the abridged edit that that he was either forced or chose to convey i think to kevin's point from earlier that they may have had to choose some additional character placement because of hey this person's safe and they're here and how can we make sure to work all of that in so that we don't have to pull in another actor from somewhere that maybe would have been scripted but just couldn't make the cut for whatever reason, dealing mm-hmm. either health issues or just like can't bounce between filming locations so they can't be brought on for something else. So maybe something like that. If it takes uh, two minutes of screen time, two pages of script to convey a point that uh, that a breathless Jodie Whittaker can can run into the room, spew at a at a green screen and run back out again in 20 seconds. Or just have her floating, and there's no running time. And oh, hey, <laughs> I saw that happen. There yeah, you go. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's definitely the lion's share. I would say for a lot of the issues this series, but equally having a breathless Jodie Whittaker run through about 50, 50 sentences of exposition, then run out of the room, has been sort of a characteristic of this whole era. I felt like. And a lot of the times, those words could be a lot breezier, could be a lot shorter, or could be in a more visual or um, multi-character way of presentation. Mm-hmm. 100%. I felt that there was a lot of exposition to guide us from one to the next. Like, oh, I'm being pulled back to XYZ. Oh, yeah, and all the like- other Maori scenes. Yeah. Were ones where you know she she in, instead of landing somewhere and then having to to figure out exactly where and when she lands, she suddenly has uh, some advanced cognizance of where she's headed and is saying, "Oh, you're going to see me next in about twenty seconds in this location and time." Ah! I thought one of the uh, biggest ones on that front was a scene I would personally have cut entirely at the start of episode five with the weeping angels, where she's just standing in a big field of them monologuing and trying to figure out what just happened and. All of the information about what just happened is conveyed in the next scene. There's no actual development within that scene. It just kind of, if you're going to deflate the cliffhanger anyway by having it just be a system of transportation, just go into that, have the audience go, oh, that was different, and I'm surprised, as opposed to, oh, is that all we're getting? Right. Yeah, have her break apart from the stone in the division ship. Um, but you know, they built all those little angel statues and they had to use them <laughs> again. So, right. but, but again, hats off. D neg 
killed it this year on the effects. So any opportunity they wanted, I think what they were, one of the reasons why they might've at least done a, a couple of seconds of that sequence, that, that interstitial getting her from point A to point B was just to be able to show sheer numbers so that you could have the field of them going as far as the eye could see. Cause they, yes, at the, at the close of, of village of the angels, they did have 30 or so of them, you know, stacked on top of the Karen there. And that, that's fine, but hundreds. Well, it does, doesn't that mean that it's going to be better by a factor of 10? But does that mean that the angels have either they all hang out in that travel zone and they were just waiting like a highway or <laughs> does it take that many of them to do the transport? Like why was all of that necessary? And how did the doctor break out? I love that image of just the angels having this like communal meat spot. It's like the weeping angel dive bar. I love that. I need more of that. <laughs> but it's super, super quiet. And it's like a traffic jam on the highway where they, <laughs> they all just stand there endlessly. They were all at different points of uh, looking. Right. So they come in there and they get caught in the middle of, ouch, now I'm staring at Susan <laughs> yeah. over there. What am I supposed to do? Damn it, Susan. Until someone else transports right in front of them and then they can. <laughs> <laughs> it started as just three of them. And every time one of them would pop into the room, stuck. they'd get stuck and it just gets worse and worse. We sort of already touched on this, but having at least two script editors credited in the Series 13 production, do we think they were able to do anything useful working for an autocratic showrunner? Very protective of his material. Yes. Um, like staring down people in interviews saying, don't talk about nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah that, that and the disclosures. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, by textbook, the modern in modern parlance, the definition of a series showrunner is a combination of wearing the, uh, the lead executive producer's hat and story editor, not necessarily script editor. Am I, am I right in that sort of general, sort of vague combination of titles? Or is I mean, that, I don't want to get into semantics, but. I, um, showrunner is such a vague title as far as I'm aware that it can take on so many different hats. Like you're saying, definitely mm -hmm. some combination of a head writer or script editor and producer seems to be roughly what we're looking at. But I mean, plenty of shows have multiple showrunners or, you know, all that. It's, it's a very Doctor Who thing, I think, to have specifically the model we have right now. And I don't know mm. how many people are really doing it the same way. We, yeah, we've discussed, I don't know how many times over the years about how Doctor Who would benefit from a, from a writer's room, um, or, or some variance thereof, or at least, um, you know, a, a rotating cast of characters where there's at least more than one set of hands on the keyboard at any given moment. But as far as what these, uh, alle alleged, script editors are allowed to do knowing that that Chibnall has always said in in every junket and and any opportunity a convention panel and things when he did actually deign to speak about it that this was a story that he has been waiting for so so long to tell that this was something he knew he wanted to be able to do and this this opportunity presented itself because he's got the doctor that he wanted he's got the supporting cast that he wanted he's got the opportunity you know he's got the the, the budget that he that he felt that he could do it and the only thing that really kind of kicked him this time around is he wasn't given as many hours uh, of, of screen time to actually do it. So I understand. But anybody that dares pick up that pen and say, eh, you know, I have some notes, whether it's coming from 
these two individuals who are who are credited as as uh, script editors or anybody in the the uh, um, uh, on the camera side of things that say, all right, well, uh, we need to, we need uh, some connective tissue here, or this is a pretty broad jump. Um, what have we got to, to backfill this transition? Are we just going to do, you know, Star Wars uh, wipes, <laughs> Lucasfilm wipes to get us from scene to scene or what have you? It, it, yeah. I think you can, I don't think that we will ever really know for sure. And because we're not in the room, but I think that seeing what was produced, I think you can guess that there are opportunities for that feedback in this kind of structure, which is why, We've talked about it a little bit, how successful writer's rooms can be, or at the very least, just a, do you mind taking a look at this? Make sure I've got something that has a good through line, any kind of notes. They can be taken with as much weight or as little as necessary from the perspective of this is my story and I want it told a certain way. But I think that there is that opportunity for sure. Well, and if if only one set of eyes is looking at it, only one set of hands is touching it, it's very easy when you're reading the story that you know you're trying to tell, you can fill in the gaps because, you know, you created those gaps and like, you know what the whole process and story is supposed to be. That's the benefit of another set of eyes is someone who is not in your head can be like, I don't understand how you got from here to here. Like, show me. Yeah. And I think the other benefit is, uh, I think th- this era in particular has had a habit of wandering into unfortunate implications, be it, say, turning the master over to the Nazis, it's the, which is still the most glaring one to me, or even in this series, the doctor saying, oh, there's a lot of people without a home, they're refugees, they're going to go try and invade you now. It, it, it feels like having one other set of eyes or more sets of eyes throughout the process, through the writing, through the editing, all of that, having more freedom and control would have helped balance it out, make a more accessible and less problematic series. Yeah, when you're the only voice in the room or the only pen on the paper, you don't get the benefit of other people's experiences. And that's important in any creative endeavor. And that was something I think Chibnall had been doing so well previously. He was doing, yes, he always seemed to be very hands-on and in control and not even telling the other writers what his plans were, but... He was hiring a diverse range of writers and directors, and because of, at least according to him, because of COVID, I still think you could easily do a serialized series with more writers and just have communication. But because of that, he made the decision to cut them out, and I think you feel the lack of those other voices. True. We use technology to talk to other people far, far away. I don't think that's so yeah, hard, yeah. right? There are a lot of creative properties out right now that are that are doing those sort of hive mind projects uh, and and managing to to put material forward that that does have that rounded, uh, f- fleshed out um, or or broken in feel of knowing that this has gone through a couple of eyes and and someone who comes through and says, all right, this just needs a little bit of levity. It needs a bit of punch up. And somebody else comes in and says, there's some continuity concerns that, um, that I'm still grappling with, uh, or, or somebody else who says, you know, it's just a matter of, I, I need to blow more things up. Can we please just blow more things up? Because this is supposed to be a family show and kids want to see potatoes exploding or, you know, what have you. So, um, mm, hash browns, <laughs> <laughs> chocolate but hash browns. That's <laughs> chocolate I, I, hash I don't know if I'm willing to take I that. Forgot about gamble. that. No, chocolate covered potato chips are lovely. That that is true. That is true. I I, I sit corrected. Forgot about that. <laughs> 
but as it stands, we still have two specials remaining uh, in the in the Chibnall era, so to speak. But it is safe to say that at this point, those who enjoy his work and defend his work will continue to do so, and those that don't are certainly not going to be swayed if they ever possibly could. Um, but this is this is what we have. Uh, whether we're going to get resolution to our unresolved plot threads, or whether it's going to be something that's handed over to to Russell to say, "Hey, do your best." Uh, you seem to be the uh, the the reigning commander in chief, so everybody's got all eyes on you. Here's a baby, <laughs> and that's that's kind of remains to be seen. Um, but nonetheless, we're we're still in for the ride. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for for adding your insight to the conversation. It has been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Absolute pleasure joining you guys. And uh, and I, I think we know we're probably not going to go back and, and rewatch this series often. Um, but um, yeah, someday but ho- when there's true for, for hopefully for anybody who is listening this, you know, in the year 2000 in the distant future um, <laughs> that uh, uh, that our our assessment um, rings true. Uh, I think we, we gave this a fair shake. You know, we, we watched uh, all these chapters uh, at least two, if not three plus times uh, to make sure that we were getting all we could from them. Um, there are a lot of positives. There are a lot of positives to this as we started at the at the top of the conversation. There are a lot of things about this that we genuinely enjoy. It is an interesting story. It is risky. Uh, it is a bold endeavor. It just may not have stuck the landing. It has Eustatius Jericho in it. It has Eustatius freaking Jericho. <laughs> and it has some great costumes from the mummy. So, <laughs> I mean, how can you go wrong? <laughs> well, I, I guess we've seen how you can go wrong. We saw. <laughs> hey, at least it Fair gave enough. us Thadia Graham. I'm so thankful for that. That is definitely true. Well, next week, our classic rewatch comes back into the rotation. So we are going back to 1983, back to the fifth doctor with Tegan and Nyssa and no Adric. Uh, so that we get, we pick back up with the return of the Mara in snake dance because, you know, you get Tegan back and you finally have her back in the TARDIS. So what do you do? You give her more trauma because. Why you got to do a heck for Tegan? Well, well, <laughs> because I, th- I know Janet Fielding can take it. <laughs> She's tough as nails. <laughs> so, so until yeah. then, this has been episode 452 of Gallifrey Public Radio. Until next week, uh, this is Kier saying, The Chibnall Legacy. 60% of the time, it works every time. This is Julie saying, I'm all in for that Lupari Viking shield wall. <laughs> uh, and this is Haley saying, I can't wait until next week. It's always great when they put a snake in Doctor Who. Thanks for joining us. Allons-y. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gallifrey Public Radio. Want to keep the conversation going? You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Or just send us a good old-fashioned email to feedback at gallifreypublicradio.com. You can also give us a phone call at 754-225-5477. That's 754-CALL-GPR. And you may hear your voice on a future episode of the show. Everything's got to end sometime. Otherwise, nothing would ever get started. Join us next week for a brand new episode.
I am Jacob Hansen. Godfrey Public Radio is copyright 2021. We'll see you next week. Until then, this has been episode 500 and... No, it's... I'll start that over. Until then, this has been episode 451 of Gallifrey Public Radio, but it hasn't because I believe this is 452. (laughs) I'm starting to fall down at this point. I'm going to do a lot of great editing.